Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Bible reading is taken from John chapter 5 from verse 31 to 47. At the end of this reading, I will say this is the word of the Lord. Please kindly respond by saying thanks be to God. John chapter 5 from verse 31 to 47. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor. And I I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamb that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I'm doing testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not, love, you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you would accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what how are you going to believe what I say? This is the word of the Lord. All right. Sorry for that interruption. Thank you, Tosin, for the reading. Good morning, everyone. All right. Um, So we're going to continue in this series that we've been doing. For those who are coming here for the first time or you've not been here in a long time, Welcome to City Church. As Yemi said, we're a gospel-centered urban church. Now, by saying that, the gospel, I don't know how many of us would be able to say this is what the gospel is, but at least you know if people are Christians, there is something about the good news of Jesus Christ. And so this beginning, this uh, first series that we're taking as a church uh, is we're going through the book of John. We realize, look, if we're going to, especially in our values, the very first value is saying that we love Jesus, 
and we want to be a gospel-centered church, it would be nice to know about Jesus. Because sometimes, you know, you can become very familiar with things. You become very familiar. Why do you say that the husbands are too familiar with them? That's why those days they used to buy them presents. And now all of a sudden you don't buy them presents. You have seen me finish. You know, all those kind of things. And really, it's the same thing with Jesus. Many of us went to Sunday school and we assume we know Jesus. And yet there is a need to actually always go back and meet with him. Where better to meet with him than the Bible? And also in the recorded um, writings about Jesus' life. And so we are doing this series that we call Believe and Live. Seeing Jesus through the book of John. You know, John tells us in the 20th chapter, verse 30 and 31, that he wrote the things that he wrote in his book so that we can know that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and that in that knowledge we will believe and that in believing we would have eternal life. So we call that believe and live. You believe in him as the Son of God and then you would have eternal life. So this is our fifth, I believe, our fifth message on that. I refer you to our podcast on SoundCloud, The Gospel in Lagos, if you want to catch up with the other four. But today we are going to our fifth one, and as Totten read for us, is in John chapter 5. Let me start with this. This is the quote. This was the largest crowd to witness an inauguration, period. I don't know how many of us heard that. And started this, well, I'll, I'll get to the hashtags. But that was on the first uh, um, press uh, uh, briefing with the, the new administration in the U.S., the spokesman for the administration uttered those memorable words. Now, what he was referring to was the crowd that was present at the inauguration of the current president, and they had been, he had said on Twitter that this was the largest uh, um, a crowd to actually witness the inauguration, following which some people released some pictures, aerial pictures, that showed that except you are blind, or except you are living in your own world, you will be able to make that claim. Because it was almost without, you couldn't actually, you know, it, it wasn't substantiated. The, the, the crowds were more. Now, after that, this man said this. And eventually he decided to reel out um, uh, 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 facts that basically tried not to prove his case, but to prove why we shouldn't necessarily believe the other people's case, the people that are opposing. So, for instance, that there's no scientific uh, way of measuring crowds. There is no objective scientific way. And, of course, that, that is true, but usually that is if we are trying to get things to the nearest uh, number, not when you see such a, a huge, you know, um, uh, gulf of difference. Well, then... Um, the lady that actually ran the campaign successfully towards the latter part, Kellyanne Conway, then was on MSNBC and she was being interviewed. And they asked her about this and she said, you know what? They produced their alternative facts. And we started having the hashtag alternative facts. Don't laugh. <laughs> now, the truth is there is an alternative interpretation of what fact means. But the only alternative to an objective fact is a falsehood. In other words, why has this thing blown up? You know, sometimes the media actually just keep, you know, running it so that they can have ratings and doing all that. And we have to be careful with the media. But on the other hand, it's because for us human beings, facts matter. Facts and evidence matter. They help us to perceive the reality before us. 
that reality, when we perceive it, it leads to certain kinds of actions. Some of it right or some of it wrong. For example, it's one thing if a woman caught her husband sleeping with someone else that isn't her. And it's another thing if she saw her, hus her husband entering a room with someone else. Now, in both cases, her action, if her action was to leave him, one will be justified, the other one may or may not be justified. Because in the first case, she had a cheating husband. In the second case, as far as we know objectively, she had a husband that entered the room with somebody else. What happened after? She doesn't know. And this leads to also something else about facts. And it's really about our perception and bias. Now, you can put two people, for instance, and this happens, unfortunately, in this country. You present certain facts to them of a certain case, and someone is trying to present the case to prove the oppression of a woman. So you bring two people to look at the facts. One sees it as admissible evidence to the fact that a woman is being oppressed, and the other one sees it as the fact that the woman is being rightly corrected. They are presented with the same data, but at the same time, they perceive it differently. Why? It's clear that something else underneath is affecting how they perceive the data that is seen to them. Now, Jesus, in his monologue here that Tosin read, is going to help us think about our perception and how we look at different things. This whole issue of testimony, witness, and I'm going to interchangeably use those words in, the, in, the, in, in, in this sermon, but he helps us to consider these things. Now, a quick rundown. Our last time, we looked at the woman at the well in John chapter 4, the early part of John chapter 4. Now, at this point, Jesus is now experiencing mounting opposition from the Jews. So, at chapter 5 to chapter 10, you are going to see series of stories where Jesus is now facing mounting opposition. In 1 to 4, we started to see the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And so, we saw John the Baptist's witness. We then saw that he ministered to the Jewish establishment in Nicodemus in chapter 3, or maybe in chapter 2, we first saw the first signs of Jesus' glory. Then in chapter 3, we see, saw his ministry to the Jews represented by the establishment in Nicodemus. In John chapter 4, his ministry to, Samar to the Samaritans with the woman at the well. At the end of John chapter 4, his ministry to the Gentiles uh, with, the, with the healing of the centurion's daughter. Now, in chapter 5, this wasn't read. At the beginning of chapter 5, 1 to 17, there's this issue of him healing a man on the Sabbath day. This now starts this whole persecution by the Jews. In 19 to 30 of this same chapter, he now declares and says many different things, but essentially saying, guess what? I'm the son of God. And this then leads to him trying to present evidence or witnesses or testimonies to prove that declaration, because it's a massive one. So I want us to look at this sermon. If you like, call it true testimony. I really couldn't find a good, I, I just needed to give a, a title, but I couldn't find any good title for it. But they say for the podcast, it helps. So call it true testimony. If you don't agree with it, please give me a better one later. But we look at it through three points. Three points is back again. The authentic testimony, the inauthentic testimony, and the ultimate testimony. And you can even just see the uh, authentic witness, the inauthentic witness, and the ultimate witness. So let's start with our first point. The inauthentic testimony. Now, in law, and I got this from Wikipedia, a witness is someone who provides testimonial evidence either oral or written, 
of what he or she knows or claims to know about a matter or the matter before some official authorized some official authorized to take such a testimony. All right? So it's someone that provides testimonial evidence about a particular matter. Now, whatever the matter is, it must be important for us to then say, well, let's bring in witnesses to substantiate this thing, right? So somebody is caught doing something that they're not meant to do, or somebody says, proclaims something, and then we really don't care about what that person says until the person actually brings a witness, some kind of witness, whether it's a human being or some kind of proof that what I am saying is true. So consider this, this statement. I love you. To which the response is, how do I know that? Or, you are lying. And your proof is, or I'm a famous person. And who knows you? How many Twitter followers do you have? Or, I am the son of God. To which we say, no, you're a blasphemer. Just how do we corroborate that? You see, Jesus has made certain claims Probably not the first person to claim it, but the first person to continually and consistently. And in this kind of setting, the Jewish setting, it's just not the kind of thing you say. To, to think that you are somehow equal with God or even have some kind of connection to God that is beyond the Israelites who thought that they had the most special connection to God, God's own people, it's actually trading on blasphemy. Look, at this time, they couldn't even say the name of the Lord. I mean, you will not get an Israelite that says the word Yahweh. It was too sacred. And now you have this man not just saying Yahweh, but saying he's my father. I saying I'm the son of God. And of course, as we see in verse 17, Jesus has to offer a defense. So all of a sudden, this whole passage is set up as though he's in a court. I'm sure the lawyers among us here will love this. So he's like in the court, and he starts to give a defense. Now, one of the things that Jesus makes clear to us in verse 34, just the beginning part, is that he doesn't need human testimony. Why? Or he doesn't need a human witness. Why? Well, if a, cred if a witness that we say this is a real good witness, if we're meant to bring it, we, we, we expect that that witness, at least, if, if it's going to be a, a witness, he must be credible. We expect that he must be in a good mental state. This person must be knowledgeable. This person must be accurate. And this person must be flawless, must have a flawless character. Now, when we say those terms, all these terms I've said, obviously we think about it in relative terms. In other words, we're not saying, I must get the most flawless person in the whole world to come and do this. But we say, to, to every reasonable um, measure, this person should actually have an impeccable character. To every reasonable measure, this person ought to be credible. Accurate. But Jesus is saying, I don't need any other testimony. Why? Because I have one witness. Verse 31. He says that I have a witness, another. Let me, let's, where's that? Sorry. Yeah. So in verse 31, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Verse 32. There is another who testifies in my favor. Now, who is that another? That another is also seen in verse 37. The father who sent me himself testified concerning me. Which more credible witness are you going to get than God? You know, you can't really in a law court come and say, um, 
So we have five witnesses. Two of them are saying this thing. Three of them are saying this thing. On this side here, we have Tomiwa, and we have uh, uh, Shegun Ahmed, and we have Kemi Olowojolu. On this other side, we have Tosi Oshunui and God. So let's now consider all their cases. All right, enter Shegun Shogbamu, uh, enter Tosi, enter uh, Tomiwa, uh, enter Mr. God. And then we're going to now put God on trial to see whether or not he is true. Of course that is absurd. If you take the view of who God is in the Bible, he is the measure of what truth is. We only consider truth because God is impeccably true. There is no true thing apart from what God perceives. What is truth? Truth is God's perception of reality. It's not true if God doesn't see it as true. And so Jesus is saying... Because I've been with God, because I know God, and I know what God says about me, I actually don't need you to actually prove my, to myself that I'm actually true. You know, sometimes we need somebody else to affirm us, to know whether or not we are valuable in something, to know whether or not, you know, we really played well. Ni played today. I come sometimes and say, Ni, that was very good. You know, when we're having a meeting, that was very nice. He will now start telling me, well, he made this mistake, and he made that mistake, and I said, well, that's for you and all the experts. For me, that was really good. But if Ni had one of these maestros around and they now told him, you want to know, did I do very well or not? Jesus is saying, I don't need that because I've got God on my side. So why then does he mount some of his um, witnesses here? Well, it's very simple. Verse 34, B, he says he does it. Sorry, can I have the printed reading? Tosin, please. He says he does it. So that, so not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. In other words, Jesus is going to mount these testimonies not because of himself, but because of the people who are listening. But I want you to see something. The only witness that Jesus actually brings is the Father's witness. But the Father's witness is now three-pronged. Right? The father's witness, how the father has cooperated, has, has, has um, approved of him on the earth. He's going to bring three witnesses. One is the father's prophet. Second is the father's works. And then the third is the father's word. What is the father's own? It's God's own. So I'm sure by the time Jesus mounts all of this, the people will believe, wouldn't they? Well, let's test. Let's start with the father's prophet. Now in verse 33 to 35, we see that that is John the Baptist. If you remember the beginning of the book of, um, of uh, uh, John, in the, in the prologue of John, we hear this thing about John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. But here it does say that John was a lamp that burned and gave light. The Greek would be better translated as he was like ignited. John was a light that was ignited, so the source was not in John. He was ignited so that he could give light. In other words, John really, as John chapter 1 says, he was sent from God, and he now started burning as a light. They entertained John, and they took his witnesses, as it says here, John was a lamp that burned and gave light. And you chose to enjoy John's light, but only for a time. 
Have you ever been in a situation when most of the time, there's a way you think about things. There's a method in which you think about things. But all of a sudden, on a particular day, you suspend the way you actually think about that thing because of what is challenging you. So we follow judiciously some ways of thinking, and all of a sudden, once that way of thinking becomes faulty because you're being challenged. So you either escape from someone's counsel, or you withdraw from a discussion, or you condemn others, but you don't see how that same way in which you condemn the others is also condemning you. Jesus says, take out the log from your eye so that you can see very clearly before you start taking out the speck in people's eyes. They chose to dwell or or enjoy John's light until John started himself saying things that were too, you know, too much, like, John, come on, really? Behold the Lamb of God that takes, come on. He is the one that baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. There's a problem here. And sometimes also Christianity challenges us. It's very easy to just say something like, well, the Bible says, the Bible says, then also somebody now comes to meet you concerning something you do, and say, well, the Bible says, say, whoa, whoa, all this Bible, Bible thing. Who even knows? Who even knows you? That's when you now say, yeah, it depends on the interpretation. Only for a time. And here, these people are not submitting to what John says. They chose to, to, to enjoy John's light but for a time. What about his works? Now look at verse 36. He says, the works, I have a testimony with you than that, John, for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works I'm doing, testify that the Father has sent me. Now what works are those? Remember I said, it's the Father's works in, um, in, in, in the earlier parts of verse 17, 19 to 22 and 30. In effect, Jesus said to them, my Father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so you will be amazed. Verse 21, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to who he is pleased to give it. 22, moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. 30, by myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. What are the works that Jesus Christ was doing? Well, the works of Jesus Christ, which is the work God sent him to do, so it's his Father's works, which he is now doing on the earth, is everything to do with his redemptive ministry. Remember, the book of John starts with the prologue, but immediately takes us into the ministry of Jesus Christ at the baptism of, with the baptism of John. And then the very first signs of his glory we see in chapter 2, where he turns water into wine. But all of this is going somewhere. Jesus is not just some kind of magician doing miracles. In fact, that's, not why, that's why they're not called miracles in this book. They are called signs. In other words, when he does this thing, is a sign or a signpost pointing to a different reality or a bigger reality. So, for instance, now, if you uh, go to Victoria Island, you may see, where you're going on Ozumba, by the way, you may see a sign that says, Ademola Adetokumbo. And you now then go, and you want to go and see someone at Ademola Adetokumbo. So you now go to the sign, and you park there, and you call the person and say, I am at Ademola Adetokumbo. So of course not. The sign is not the reality. The sign points to the reality. And so when Jesus Christ did miracles, the miracles were signs to a greater reality. 
the climactic event of his redemptive ministry. We'll get to that. But these are the works that the Father has sent him to do. For instance, the Quran claims that Jesus, when he was a child, actually made birds out of clay. And it doesn't give you any reason for it. That's why we know that there is a problem with that testimony. Jesus Christ didn't just do these things to entertain people. So the miracles pointed to the truth of who he was and what he came to accomplish. But verse 38, they still did not believe him. Now even today, I know there's an abuse of miracles that are being done, but there are genuine miracles being done. And yet, many people still haven't seen those things, enjoy it, but still don't believe in him. Or if you're a non-Christian, for so many of us here who would not call ourselves Christians, have doubted Jesus without any objective way of finding out truly about him. Investigations in history prove that he is the most attested to ancient person ever written about. Records of his life and miracles are yet to be credibly refuted. His resurrection best explains the evidence of recorded history and the existence of the church today. And the church, despite all its flaws, is the largest charitable organization in the world today and forever. Despite this, you don't believe. What about his word? So Jesus hits the Jewish leaders where it hurts them the most. Because it was Jewish leaders that were, that were challenging him, as we see in verse 10. The, word, the scriptures that they gently study. So verse 39, look at what he says. He says, you study the scriptures diligently. And Jesus is saying that though they are devoted to reading the scriptures, their method has been messed up. How does he know it's been messed up? Because they don't read the scriptures and then identify him as the one the scriptures are actually pointing to. Now at this point he's talking about the Old Testament. And he's saying, if you are not, if it's not pointing to me, then there is a problem in how you are reading. In other words, we're saying this, and don't hear me, don't mishear me. Diligently studying scripture, 2 Timothy tells us that, we should uh, study the scriptures to um, show ourselves approved before God, a workman that needs not be ashamed. That is very, very important. Studying the scripture diligently is absolutely necessary and it is not sufficient. Because it's not just the diligent study of scripture that is important, it's the right diligent study that is required. You see, even now, or let me say then, the leaders were fervent. You can be fervent, you can be full of life, and you can be genuinely wrong. He's saying that if the Old Testament read properly doesn't lead to Jesus, then there's a problem with your reading. Every story, every set of laws, every wisdom, every event is in some way pointing to Jesus. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Hebrews 1, 1-2. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom, all, well, through whom also he made the universe. In other words, Jesus is a way to interpret the scripture. He says he's spoken to us in his son. Remember, the beginning of the book of John declares him to be what? The word. 
the way you see God. That is, God wants to write about himself to describe himself. There is no way you can totally prove it by, he can write it through text. So do you know what he does? He comes himself and he says, that's God. Now, he's not discounting what was said by the prophets. No, he's saying that everything in the prophets, though they were veiled, they're, some, they're going somewhere. He's spoken to us in the prophets, but in this last day, the last days come with the coming of Jesus because a new era has dawned through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, if you look at the Old Testament and you still don't see Jesus, there is a problem. You diligently said the scriptures. The one whom the scriptures is pointing to is here. And guess what? You can't still see him. And that condemns them, he's saying. Unfortunately, even now, you, it's, it's not hard to hear a sermon or someone preaching from the Bible, let's say from the Old Testament, and it's going in many different directions. David was a mighty king, be like David. Solomon was very wise, be like Solomon. And sometimes we even misinterpret things, right? What do we do with Esther, for instance? Well, Esther was prepared very well for the king. It's nice to look beautiful. We don't actually know, or we don't really say, what the Bible is actually trying to tell us, that Esther was a very, very flawed human being. She was basically a harem. She was going to sleep with the king, having not been married to him. And that's what Mordecai was actually preparing her to do. But because everybody in the Old Testament must be a flawless character, we somehow have to jump over many hurdles to say, be like them. And also be like Jesus. So Jesus becomes just one other character that we see in the Bible. Not seeing that despite the people's flaws and what God was doing with them in the Old Testament, it was somehow pointing to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher in the 19th century, said this about people who preach and don't preach Christ in the sermon. He says, leave Christ out. Oh, my brethren, better leave the pulpit altogether. If a man can preach one sermon without mentioning Christ's name in it, it ought to be his last. Certainly the last that any Christian ought to go, go to hear him preach. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. And he's not wrong. To miss Jesus is to reveal something about us when we read the scriptures. It says more about us than it says about him. Are we trying to be the hero in the story? You see, the Bible really is not about us. It's about him. But in verse 40, they still refuse to come to him, despite their searching of the scriptures diligently. So the witnesses still, the three witnesses that he presents, still do not convince the people. And this means to you and I here, especially those of us that will be overly rational, that evidence and facts sometimes is not all that takes to convince someone. In fact, Jesus says that there's something else going on that we need to look at before people get convinced. And that takes us to our second point, the inauthentic testimony. Now, you know what's so funny? That despite the evidence to prove Jesus, uh, Jesus was, was uh, despite the evidence to prove who Jesus was, all the three that he'd mounted, the Jewish leaders will be open <laughs> to following other people, as we see in verse 43. I have come in my father's name and you don't accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. See what Jesus is doing? He's now turning the tables on them. They've been trying to judge him, now he's trying to judge them. 
they are so able to follow people who don't have the same evidence as Jesus has, and yet it's easier to follow those guys, but yet they don't follow Jesus Christ who has much more evidence. What's going on? You see, today, far too many of us are into, I don't know what to call it, but different forms of spirituality that they have very little evidence to back their claims. You know, we tend to be moved by the exotic, things we've not heard about before. So right now, yoga is in fashion, right? Even though most people don't know what yoga means. But, you know, I just want to go and do some yoga and, you know, come on. I mean, many Eastern religions and some of the New Age things that we see today, a lot of them say very, very simply, at the heart of it, that everything you see here, everything you see here is an illusion. That's the foundation of a particular practice that we're doing. It's an illusion, but you know it's kind of exotic. We don't know where it's coming from. It makes us look sophisticated. It makes us feel enlightened. No, no, no. Let's use the better Nigerian word. It makes us look exposed. And that's, on the one hand, finding new things. On the other hand, there's a lot of going back. Someone shared on Facebook recently about someone who set up a GoFundMe account because she wanted to come for a kind of initiation to uh, her Ifa, whatever. It's quite funny. Last time I was, I, was, uh, I, was on way to, I was on the way to U.S., and I noticed there was a lady who we were both standing at the bathroom on the plane together, and she was really dressed in white. She's definitely an American, black American lady. And... As I saw the white, then I saw some other guys also white. I knew what was going on. So I started questioning her, where, where are you coming from? I said, well, you know, they came to Nigeria. I said, where in Nigeria? I said, where they went to Ife. What did you come and do? Well, we went on some kind of tourism. Why don't you just tell me what you went to do if you are not ashamed of it? There's a lot of going back to African traditional religion again because, you know, Christianity came. It was actually through the, the means of colonialism. But now we must go back to our roots and find out how wonderful things are. Really? Well, uh, Yoruba, African traditional religion, and look, I'm a proud Yoruba man. But he says that civilization started in Ife. Come on. <laughs> we easily follow different things, but let's even bring it closer to home. Most of us, or most Nigerian Christians or Lagosian Christians, are, su are suffering from what we call, or I call, mugs. You know what mugs is? Mugs. M, capital M, capital O, capital B, capital S is. Man of God syndrome. Right? These will be charlatans coming in the name of God, giving bogus claims. Right? You want a visa. You want a visa, right? Don't forget the fact that you have no money in your account. Forget the fact that you've, you have absolutely no one that lives there, but if you actually come and give me this amount of money, I will pray for you and it will work out. Now, that doesn't sound very sophisticated. Right? So then you can put it in promotion language, you can put it in all these different things. We follow, we're easily taken astray. We refuse to come to the true God in the way he has credibly revealed himself. And you know what? When we don't come to God, the one who shows all the evidence actually for us to come to, guess what happens? There is a void that is there and others will fill that void. Others who are less credible, others who actually don't have the claims to, uh, the, the evidence to back up their claims. What has gone wrong? And I have to quick, quickly move now. Jesus says that it is something to do with our heart. Have you ever misunderstood a friend or a wife out of, or your wife or your husband out of rage? That is what I'm saying is you've totally misunderstood them. When you've now calmed down, the thing that you accuse them of, based on the evidence that you say, when you look at it, you'll be like, 
Femi, how in God's name did I even come to this conclusion? As in, there's absolutely no reason for it. And you think about it later, if you really did think about it, you start finding out that something else underneath was acting. Now, at the, at the best is that maybe you were very, very tired, and so you should have gotten some sleep. At the worst is other things like jealousy, tribalism, favoritism. Jesus says that we refuse to come despite the evidence because of a heart condition, verse 42. But I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God where? In your hearts. In fact, he even says that, 38, that the word of God does not dwell in you. It's a heart condition issue. That is what works underneath that affects our thinking, that affects our will, it affects our emotions. What our heart accepts, our minds find intelligible, the emotions find desirable, and the will finds doable. You see, Christianity, as we learned, as we saw in um, chapter 3 about the message of being born again, what Jesus Christ offers is nothing less than a, heart sur- a surgical heart transplant. He takes out your heart of flesh, of stone, and gives you a heart of flesh. Because forget it, many of the suspicions we have, many of the justifications we have for not doing what we don't want to do, is not because there's no evidence to it. It's because there's something else working underneath. And that is why they refuse to come to him. You see, the problems we all experience, why we act, people act irrationally, is often deeper than what we care for. So are you here and ready to admit that your refusal to believe in Jesus is because you don't want, really, what the Christian life demands? Very simple. It's not the lack of evidence. I can't remember the writer that who, who said it. He said he saw all the evidence. He refused to be a Christian because he wanted to live a certain kind of sexual life on campus, and Christianity was not going to offer him that. And so he chose not to believe. He didn't, and this man was actually quite honorable, he didn't say that he had a good argument against it. He said that the reason he didn't want to submit to it was because he was going to cramp his style. Are you willing to be that honest? Now, I said, if you refuse to come, what you find out is that the things, the desires that you have now, Jesus is saying, I want to change your heart so that the things that you feel you cannot do without now, you would actually find them desirable. Now, but how does that happen? Final point. Wow, it has to be the final point. All right, let's rush. Now, the final point, the precise testimony, or did I change that? Ultimate. I changed, I changed it at the back. I didn't change it in front. But I think precise gets better. It's better. The, the precise testimony. Now, how does he do it? Now, remember, in, um, it says that Moses said something, but actually they weren't believing Moses. Now, Jesus turns the table back on them, as I said. In verse 45, you notice he says, But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes have set. Moses that they believe, and they set their hopes on. Jesus saying that Moses is their accuser. Moses is now the one. The scriptures, the very scriptures that they don't believe, now becomes the scriptures that judge them. And many of us do have our own accusing Moses. They are the standards that we set that we fail to meet up to. The standards that make us feel like we are someone in this life. Whether it's the standards of, 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 of education, the standards of wealth, the standards of power. We say this is what it means to be a real person. By the end of the day, you don't meet that and therefore you don't feel like you're a good person because you fail to meet your own standards. It could also be the standards that our culture has set but that we've embraced 
and still we don't meet up those standards and they condemn us. It could even be the standards for morality. But you don't meet up to the standard and therefore you are now condemned. You approve of the standard, but the standard now, because of misuse, has now come back to bite you. It condemns you. Ah, stop it. Sorry. And it comes back to condemn us. Now, how do we deal with it? Now, what did Moses precisely say? And this, I want to quickly spend some time on this, so forgive me. Other people read the Bible through Jesus' lens, but often get it wrong. That is, there are some people who would say, yes, Jesus is the meaning for the whole Bible, but it's not really a lens, it's a sieve. So let me give you three examples. One would be the bling-bling Jesus, right? It's the Jesus who every single promise that we see, especially in the Old Testament, because all the good promises are, you know, on this earth are in the Old Testament, right? All those things... Jesus gives us abundant life and all the, he fulfills all those promises. After all, we're doing the book of John. It's in John chapter 10 that he says that I'll give you abundant life. That's the bling bling Jesus. Anything that has to do with curses or anything that has to do with judgment, mm, just throw it away. Remember, it's a sieve. Or then you have the revolutionary Jesus. This is the Jesus that is all about in, against injustice, all about inclusivity and raging against the power structures that we have. Power is bad. The oppressed are always right. So the racially oppressed, Jesus, he sides with them, good. The gender oppressed, Jesus sides with them, good. The sexually oriented oppressed, Jesus also sides with them. Mm. Here's the problem. And finally, this one that concerns me the most, because really now it's having a huge move all around our campuses. People are embracing this kind of terrible teaching, I would say, is red-letter Christians. This Jesus never judges and will disagree with the God of the Old Testament, G, o, a small G, or helps us correct stuff in the Old Testament that he would never do. So, for instance, somebody was gathering sticks on the, on the Sabbath day, God said they should stone him and kill him. Ah, Jesus would never do that. How do we know? Because when we see Jesus in the New Testament, Jesus says, turn the other cheek and all that. So we go back into the Old Testament, use Jesus as the lens to tell us what is right and what is wrong. And you wonder... Has this person read Luke chapter 17, verse 26 to 30? Did not the Messiah, um, um, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. In fact, let me skip to Matthew 13, verse 41 to 42. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gentle Jesus, make a mild no. Jesus not only affirms some of the judgment passages in the Old Testament, he then ratchets it up in the New Testament. Now, this is not saying that Jesus is all wrath. Of course, Jesus is love. He's saying don't try to make a Jesus. Don't try to create a Jesus of your own making. What did Moses precisely say in the Old Testament? Permit this long quote by um, a guy called Tim Keller. It's long, but please listen to it. It will be worth it. Jesus is the true, when reading the Old Testament, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void not knowing whither he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me, now we can look to, at God 
taking his son up the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who, at the right hand of the king, forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who did not just risk living an earthly palace, but lost the ultimately unheavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so that the angel of death will, death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible is not about you. It's about him. What did Moses say? Moses said exactly what Jesus said to the guys on the road to Emmaus. That the Messiah ought to suffer these things before he came into his glory. When he opened up the scriptures for them, he showed them that the Messiah had to die. And then rise again. And so how do we deal with the condemnation that your witness brings against you? The standards you've set. Because many of those witnesses are true. You know what's ironic? That the same law that pointed to Jesus and affirmed him as the son of God was eventually misused by these leaders to condemn him and kill him. John chapter 19, verse 7. The Jewish leaders insisted we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. Was that wrong? Was he not the Son of God? Yes. But they used that same law to condemn him. But in condemning him, they fulfilled the law. Because the law pointed to the fact that the Messiah would actually be sacrificed to save his people. Listen to this. This is the gospel. Jesus, whose witnesses to his identity were true, was eventually condemned by false witnesses. So that those who believe on him, though the accusation against them is true, will be free from condemnation to become his true witnesses. I'll say that again. The witnesses against the witnesses of to Jesus' identity were true. But he was eventually condemned by false witnesses so that those who believe in him, even though the accusations against them is true, they will now be free from condemnation to become his true witnesses. And some of us here are not living as true witnesses, are we? Neither in our transformed life or speaking about him. He says, you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Not only do we not live the transformed life, but we don't even speak about him. The earlier disciples could not shut up. 
about Jesus because they couldn't keep quiet about what we've seen. What have you seen of Jesus? And you here, maybe who have never confirmed Jesus, you've never come to Jesus, is it because really you are stopping yourself? Is it because of what you think the Christian life is all about? The way you've been going, how has that been good? It's been very good for you, has it? What you think in life is true. Has it worked out for you? See, Jesus offers you something much more deeper, much more satisfying than this world can give to you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help. We ask for your grace. We thank you that you'd be so gracious that you validate Jesus for us, not that he needed it for himself. But we also know that many of the witnesses that we prove, because Jesus puts the court back to us, and his witness against us is true, but he doesn't condemn us. He calls us to believe in him so that we will be free from the condemnation the accusation brings and now become the witnesses of his saving grace. And I ask, Lord, that for anyone here who thinks they have had Jesus before, but based on lack of understanding, or are willing to come now, Father, won't you accept For you have said that I will not cast out anyone that comes to me. And for those of us who need a fresh outpouring of your spirit so that we can live as powerful witnesses, Father, pour out your spirit today in the name of Jesus Christ. Help us so that our testimony about him will be true in our lives, in what we say and how we say it, but also to the specific proclamation about the good news of what he has done. Help us to do it as a church. Help us to do it in our lives. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church. Love Jesus. Love people. Love Lagos.